we're going to get started. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm Brittany Seymour. I'm on the faculty at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine where I focus very broadly on health policy prevention um, with a strong emphasis on curriculum development and how to teach our future health professionals um, policy and prevention, basically. <laughs> uh, I'm also um, a faculty associate here at the Berkman Center. I was a fellow last year. And I consult, I'm a public health consultant for MIT's um, Media Lab. Um, so my name is Natalie Jenis. Um, I've been working on public health communications for a while. Um, I'm a graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health, and I'm trying to bridge the gap between sort of digital methods, digital and how digital methods are used in areas of public health. Um, I am a fellow at the Berkman Center right now and a research affiliate at MIT's Media Lab at the Center for Civic Media as well. Um, so this is really an opportunity to share some of the research that we've been working on to start um, engaging in a dialogue to figure out what these next steps for the future of communication of public health will look like um, and to really get your input and do kind of a short brainstorming session at the end of our um, small little talk. <laughs> Sound good? Works? Okay. Great. Thanks. So I'll start off with um, kind of one of my earlier, and by earlier I mean just a couple years ago, research projects around um, kind of misinformation in public health and how do we deal with that. Um, vaccines is a bit, it's a hot topic, it has been for a while for those of us that work in the field of public health, especially vaccines and misinformation, um, reduced trust in vaccinations, it's been a global problem. Um, so do, do you all recognize this study? What, what is this one? You're nodding. Do you know which one it is? <laughs> it's the, well, I can't quite see, but it's the study by the guy whose name begins with W. That's that right. That's right. Ah, yes, that's one. The W guy. Yeah. Exactly. 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 That's the basis of so much of the yes. anti-vaccine, yeah. except it's all been retracted. And right. It's, it's all There bogus. we go. Retracted. Exactly. Thank you. So, so that's the kind of the infamous... Andrew Wakefield study that kind of sparked the um, current concerns around the link between vaccines, child vaccines, the uh, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines specifically, and autism. So he put that study out in the late 90s, uh, caused quite a stir. Over time, it, it was found to be actually a highly fraudulent study, and he has since lost his license to practice medicine. The study was formally retracted. Um, and this is kind of a classic case for those of us in, in public health communication where there was this a lot of misinformation, we retracted the study, we put out a lot of corrective information, and yet this problem persists. It's the, the concerns about autism and vaccines are still very much alive and well despite the um, vast amounts of effort that we have put out to correct that misinformation. And not only that, the concerns around vaccines have ballooned from not just autism, but to all kinds of things. If you go to the, C the CDC's website now, there's an entire laundry list of concerns about vaccinations with corrective information that's um, meant to ease the concerns of parents and, and people that, that receive those vaccinations. But despite all these efforts, we still have this persisting challenge of what we consider to be blatant misinformation or even disinformation around vaccinations. And this challenge is not unique, as I'm a dentist by training, and community water fluoridation faces exactly the same kinds of problems, um, as do many other 
um, public health interventions. So, so we kind of took a deeper dive into the story about vaccines and really wanted to look at, you know, the role of the internet broadly. Um, and, as, and it was a very exploratory initiative and we've learned a lot in the last couple years and we think we're, we're kind of starting to come to some, some reasonable findings that might help propel us forward into um, developing some practical solutions and that's really what we wanted to talk about today. Uh, so, so we kind of dove in and we said, what's going on here? This is um, a very um, basic Google trend search where we looked at um, Jenny McCarthy's kind of public appearances on TV, on Oprah, on 2020. Each spike there, it's hard to read, but each spike is when she made a public appearance somewhere, um, put out her new book, um, all with kind of this underlying message of, you know, vaccines are harmful and perpetuating this myth that vaccines cause autism. And, and the other spike, so, so one spike is looking at Jenny McCarthy and autism. That's how many people are Googling it and they correlate with these public appearances for her. A lot of people saw her, went to the internet and, and were Googling looking up more. But also we started at the same time seeing spikes in people Googling vaccines and autism and Googling Andrew Wakefield. And this, this gave us the impression that something's going on, these, these events in life are occurring and are driving traffic to the internet and people are finding this information and these specific paired search terms are, are kind of perhaps perpetuating um, these challenges that we're seeing. And again, this was very early stage, but we started to think that what was happening in real life and what was happening on the internet both mattered and in fact seemed to be mirroring one another. And we thought, we want to know more about what's going on online. So this is when I was linked up with this phenomenal team at Berkman and MIT <laughs> um, and, and started to use the tool that MIT uh, Media Lab developed called Media Cloud. And Natalie's going to talk about our tool in a bit more detail. But what I, what I was able to do with the team is to actually map out kind of with the, we set a defined date range. Um, it captured the measles outbreak in Disneyland. This date range captured um, the new legislation in California eliminating personal belief exemptions and religious, religious exemptions from vaccinations for public school, meaning legislation was passed that parents can no longer say, don't want to vaccinate my children for religious reasons or because it goes against my personal beliefs. They have to have a documented um, medical reason and it has to be cleared by the Department of Public Health. And it was an extremely controversial move, um, but many people in public health felt it was absolutely necessary because infants were being hospitalized for measles in the US, and we just found that unacceptable. So, um, so we kind of mapped out over this period of time who's publishing about vaccines, and this is what our map looked like. Um, and so there's a lot of dots and a lot of lines connecting these dots, and the dots are basically um, sources publishing. So the CDC is there publishing, PubMed is there where scientific articles are coming out, the New York Times is there, they were publishing about vaccines. So basically all the voices who were putting out information on the internet, we generated this map. And um, the lines between these dots, which don't really show up here, but they're basically when one source links to another source. And we found that um, you can see there's a green, blue, yellow, pink kind of clusters that formed in this broad information network about vaccines. We found these kind of sub-communities or sub-networks within the bigger network that were linking to each other more frequently than other uh, sources in the network. So we basically started to see 
the early findings of what perhaps could be echo chambers. And in fact, this public, this pink network was primarily um, the public health authorities and public um, and, and, and medical um, sources that were linking to, we were linking to each other a lot more than anyone else was linking to us, which is problematic, but also started to answer our question of despite putting out um, corrective information, we're not seeing that reflected back to us with public behaviors. And this may be because the only people reading our public, our corrective information, are one another. Um, and so that led us to broader and broader area of research. Uh, so just to um, give you a couple of other case studies of the type of work we've been doing with um, these, these network analyses. So as Brittany mentioned, um, essentially what we do is we try to map out the infrastructure of communication in digital networks. So we look at the equivalent of academic citations online, which are references between sources to one another, and we follow their in-links. So similar to as, as when looking at Wikipedia, for example, there will be hyperlinks within the document that reference other documents that you can get more information about that first piece that you were looking at. So we follow those um, through this spidering process that was created here um, at the Berkman Center. And uh, we are able to essentially map out how a variety of different sources communicate with one another. Another interesting layer of analysis that I'll dive into a little bit more deeply is we also look at the type of language that's being used by these individual source communities. So what we're trying to understand is not only how do they speak to one another, but what is the language that they're using when they communicate with one another. And using a force-directed graph algorithm, which uh, is a fancy way of saying a way for source communities to cluster based on these two behaviors, in-linking and language use, um, we continuously see that the public health community is isolated from all the other communities, which intuitively makes sense, um, but the implications for that are huge, especially for public health institutions where there's an insistence on um, the importance of adding more science, for getting more evidence, for publishing more articles. And the advice that we, through all of these case studies, are beginning to be able to present to these larger public health information authorities is that more science isn't necessarily the answer to effective public health communication. It's finding ways to utilize language that's been adopted by communities outside of this public health cluster so that you can start bridging gaps between the core informa information authorities such as the CDC and the World Health Organization and mainstream media sources, which is where the majority of us get our information from. So in these three case studies, first um, was a vaccines case study where we found that the public health community was, as I'm sure you can imagine, completely isolated from the anti-vaxxers community. So the step here isn't necessarily for the CDC or the World Health Organization to publish more science-related articles or to publish more evidence, but it's, but it's to begin bridging the gaps between the sources that are anti-vaxxer, so to speak, and pro-vaccines. Um, a second case study that we looked at was um, looking at Ebola coverage for the epidemic in the United States. And um, what we found was that the majority of uh, mainstream media was focusing on uh, Obama's role in bringing the Ebola epidemic to the United States and the cases present in Texas, rather than, for example, the disaster response 
or um, recommendations by the CDC and uh, the World Health Organization on what to do. Um, as you can see in the second uh, case, the Ebola case study, the yellow community relates to US-specific topical coverage of um, the epidemic. And uh, the purple community that's circled is the public health community. Again, completely isolated on the opposite side of the map as mainstream media that was focusing on US-specific content. Uh, the third example that we're bringing up here is a look that we did on um, health more broadly in the United States over the course of 2016. Um, and the great thing is that uh, over the last year, health has become has, has been put on the agenda. At least now the news is talking about health-specific issues, be it related to insurance or related to sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, it has made it to the agenda, which is great. But the framing of health is now something that we need to evaluate more in depth. So here we have the third map where to the left, the purple community is largely mainstream media sources. Um, as well as political specific sources. So that you can see that health is becoming a part of the larger political conversation in the US. Um, to the left, that orange community is uh, a policy focused community that we found, which is where many of the foundations um, and the sources such as the Health Affairs blog that publish content related to policy lie. Um, and in the top, again, completely isolated is the public health community. So we need to be doing a better job of either adopting the language used by additional sub-communities within our networks or finding allies and bridge figures that can provide um, the information that will, that will lead to communications between these seemingly disparate groups. So to dive into our methodology a little bit better, um, the purpose of us trying to understand how the media talks about public health issues and deconstruct the way that um, digital networks talk about public health is so that we can reconstruct these narratives in a way that is productive for public health. So um, we use Media Cloud, which again is a suite of tools that um, was developed here at the Berkman Center as well as um, the Center for Civic Media at MIT. And um, our analysis is at sort of three levels. The first is um, the most basic. It's looking at attention and news peaks. So how was a given issue covered over, the, over time? What were some ebbs and flows in the amount of coverage for a given issue? Uh, we then do this link analysis where um, we've developed an algorithm here that essentially spiders through, again, these inlinks to learn how various media sources communicate with one another. And the third is uh, the language analysis where we try to identify common terms most frequently used by different source communities to understand how the policy community is speaking about an issue like abortion differently from example the C for example from the CDC and the World Health Organization and um, just a few kind of interesting um, pieces of information to gather from network graphs like this uh, the size of um, the sources that you see here which Brittany touched on earlier um, is representative of the degree centrality. So how frequently are they being referenced by other sources in this network? Um, and that's important because we'll start to consider these sources to be information authorities. They're the ones who are publishing the most amount of content that theoretically the most amount of people will be able to see because it's linked to the most frequently. 
Um, the second piece that you'll notice is um, that some sources that tend to have the, larger, the largest, um, uh, the largest uh, degree centrality are also closer to the middle of the graph. And sources that are closer to the middle are ones that link to sources um, at the greatest variety throughout the graph. So the sources that will link to the majority of the other communities will be pulled by this algorithm closer to the center of um, these types of graphs. So you're able to see, for example, that healthcare.gov that's in the bottom right of the graph is not a key information authority in the entire um, information network, but rather they're important for this policy-focused um, conversation. Or the CDC, unfortunately, you'll see it is central to the health-specific conversation and it is being pulled towards the policy conversation but it is not a part of the politics conversation. And had it been closer to the middle, it would, it would mean that sources from a variety of these communities are linking to CDC content directly. The problem with having all of these mainstream media sources in the middle is that it implies that mainstream media sources are referencing one another more frequently than they are the key information authority which is another way that um, misinformation, especially in the area of public health, can become propagated if citations between mainstream media sources are more prevalent than citations to the original data sets. So within these studies, we've had a couple of patterns, um, four patterns exactly, that sort of um, have been emerging. The first, as we've described, is the distinct ability to isolate sub-communities um, within an understanding of the digital public health conversation. Um, the second is that we've been able to find information authorities within each of these groups that don't necessarily contribute to the broader conversation, but are key sources for that individual sub-community. We've found that um, information authorities in different sub-communities don't link to one another as frequently as they do within the network, which is understandable. And unfortunately, that the public health community is continuously isolated. So part of this reason, um, and it's definitely one thing that we want to focus on during the brainstorming session later on, is how public health communications takes form or takes shape right now. And just to reflect, my first months of my public health degree, um, and this applies to other fields as well. We are presented with a number of ethical dilemmas and a number of case studies in trying to argue the best ways of prioritizing statistical lives over actual lives. So we're taught time and time again that the 75% of the population that will benefit from X intervention is who we should prioritize above the 25% of people who may be harmed by said intervention. Um, and time and time again, especially when physicians who engage in the field of public health are brought to this conversation, their issue is that they're not, it's difficult to prioritize a statistical set of lives above a patient who's directly in front of them. But we're taught to prioritize this because public health focuses on population health. So in public health, we continue to discuss with one another about the importance of statistical lives. We publish papers on the importance of statistical lives. And we continue our communications with the mainstream public based on the assumption that they agree with that prioritization and value set as well, which isn't necessarily the case. We had to learn it ourselves. 
So the fact that this continues to propagate has resulted in the public health community at large presenting information to the mainstream community and mainstream audiences without accounting for this shift in narrative. So, um, thanks, Natalie. So, so we've done enough of these case studies and we've consistently seen these patterns throughout that um, we really felt comfortable taking a broad step back and saying, this is happening. Why do we think this is happening? Why are we seeing these echo chambers? Um, and if you're not familiar with the term echo chamber, it essentially is um, what we're seeing. The physical maps, it's these communities that kind of just echo one another. So the messages, the narrative, um, with our vaccine study, for example, the public health narrative is, you know, this study came out, vaccines don't cause autism. Here's another study, vaccines don't cause autism. But the, the vaccine, the more vaccine hesitant community, the narrative was very, very different. They were linking consistently to the same kinds of sources with the same message that, um, here's the truth they don't want you to hear. Vaccines actually do cause autism and they're covering it up and this is where conspiracy theories are, are born. Um, and, 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 it's, and, and that is echoed within that community. So that's where the term echo chamber comes from. It relies on kind of these social values that are shared within communities um, and there's a built-in trust within this community because it is in and of itself a social network with shared values. And so the, so it, you know, the, the opportunity to, to introduce new information or conflicting information is greatly reduced because it violates these norms of these, these sub-communities, essentially. So we took a step back, um, and it's not just public health that's facing this kind of challenge of trust. It's the, this is Gallup data that kind of looks at trust in institutions, um, all institutions, over the last 40 years, so from 1973 to 2015. And essentially, other than the military and small businesses, every major kind of institution um, that we rely on, the media, religion, government, Congress, medicine, have all experienced a decline in trust. Um, and so when you see this decline in trust, you see this increased in, this increase in fear. And what that leads to, th these are um, Holland spheres, if you've ever seen these. These more apply to um, journalism and the press. But we think that there are there's a relationship to public health communication. And, and so, so I'm going to come back to trust in a minute, but these spheres, essentially, there are three spheres. The small center circle is um, the sphere of consensus. So what seems to be just universally accepted, everyone seems to agree on, that, on this or whatever this might be, so much so that it would be boring to talk about in the press. It'd be boring to report on. It's no, nothing new about it. No one really talks about it. It's just accepted. Um, then there's the sphere of, then outside of that is the sphere of legitimate controversy. And this is where most media happens, where debate occurs, where new information is being presented, where discussion is possible. And then outside of that is termed the sphere of deviance. Sphere of deviance is kind of defined by things that are so outrageous or so, you know, almost impossible that they are also not not reported on because that would just be ridiculous. Um, and, and so what, so to bring it back to trust, the sphere of deviance grows roots when trust breeds fear and people are starting to look for information to help ease these fears and they come on this conspiracy theory that's not, rep not reported in mainstream media or within this sphere of legitimate debate, um, but they find it and it, it, 
it resonates with this fear because of this lack of trust. And so, so we're, we think, so for example, um, in the public health community, using the vaccines and aut autism example, within our sphere of consensus um, within public health, it, it, we all agree that vaccines are, do not cause autism. Um, and so there's not as much reporting on that. Uh, the, the sphere of legitimate debate now is about how do we manage the mistrust in vaccinations and the misinformation and how do we um, shape policies that parents can feel comfortable with. But outside of that, in this sphere of deviance, is this very alive um, conversation that actually vaccines do cause autism and now there's this cover-up occurring and the science isn't that clear. and. They're, you know, it's, they're hiding this information from you. And so parents who are scared, this resonates with them. And, and this is where misinformation really grows, is within this sphere of deviance. And again, across case studies, we're seeing this sphere of deviance really start to um, expand and um, kind of create its own communities almost within these networks when we map them out. And so, so this is where it comes, so we in public health are trained to communicate the scientific proof, the evidence, the data, that's how we speak. But beyond our, com our community, um, social proof has a lot of power. And what we mean by that is this is where um, these echo chambers thrive, is not necessarily with the scientific proof, but more with the social proof, and, that's, and who's the messenger? And that's what matters. That's where the trust is gained, um, is, is by that whoever that messenger is, not necessarily the content that messenger is delivering. So social proof starts like suddenly a lot of people are sharing this, and then suddenly someone I like shares this, and then in fact it's my own close friends within my own networks are starting to share this, and that inspires me to share it because it's resonating, and suddenly vaccines cause autism. <laughs> um, and, that, that, and so that's kind of an illustration of, of, of the power of social proof, and why when we started mapping out these public health topics across you know, various um, discussions and saw these sub-communities forming, um, it's really challenging for those of us in health to recognize that the scientific evidence is not necessarily the driving factor. It's that, that the power of social proof, the power of these echo chambers, um, who's in them and who those information authorities are within those networks. So um, we're kind of at a crossroads, I think, in public health communication. We have become very good at, and our data backs that up, and we won't talk about it today, but really good at what, uh, what we're calling broadcast diffusion, where we create this, we, this very well-vetted, peer-reviewed message that's backed by the data, and we broadcast that message to all. So vac mm. vaccines do not cause autism. <laughs> broadcast that message. Um, but that we're finding that's ineffective. It hits walls, usually at the borders of our isolated public health communities. And in fact, the, the, the way we're seeing kind of beyond the public health bubble, the way communication actually works is more social diffusion, where social proof is important, the messenger is important, not as much so the content. And that, so we share a message, someone picks that message up and shares it to their network, someone else picks it up. And as this becomes socially diffused, the sentiment can change. Um, so each person that shares it adds their own um, new language choices, new narrative around that content, reshares it, and it becomes like a game of telephone. So the CDC sends a message at the top of that social diffusion 
pyramid, by the time it reaches my next door neighbor, it's a totally different message, even though it may have started out with the evidence from the information authority of, of vaccines, right? So, so how do we embrace social diffusion as a communication method when some often it runs so counter to the way we're trained to communicate? And some suggestions have been um, made for, for the media more broadly, not necessarily health-focused, that may work in this, and something called preference-based framing, um, which is basically what Natalie was, was hinting at. We have this tool where we can really dive in and look at how people are discussing a topic, their, word, their specific word choices, the context around the, that word choice, and really start customizing messages um, to fit the preferences of all these various sub-communities and see if we can get some links from that. Um, other suggestions are increased public participation. So, so perhaps almost the reverse of peer review where we, we write our papers and we get peer review and we get it into this final polished cemented form where it will be forever that way, we publish it. And, and perhaps reversing that the way a lot of other um, platforms work. Um, publishing and allowing discourse and, and making edits in real time and, and allowing for public participation. And that freaks me out. I don't know how you guys, <laughs> that idea freaks me out, but uh, because I feel very vulnerable, I feel that that introduces opportunities for greater misinformation. However, it seems to be that that is kind of the way the world is working and perhaps we can get better, become more comfortable with that approach. Um, and ultimately that approach we think will allow us to regain the public trust because the public will constantly, consistently be part of our conversation and we will show them that we welcome that. Um, so in order to fill a lot of the gaps that we've presented today, uh, there are a couple of methods for analysis that we can use um, and a couple of theories that haven't yet been applied to the area of public health communications. And having a conversation about this afterwards would be really helpful as well. So um, the first kind of piece of context um, is that in our analysis, we've sort of determined two different communication methods that happen online. Um, the first is for static content, which is largely data-driven and tends to be the type of content that like the CDC and the World Health Organization will put out. It's like the broadcast method. Exactly. The broadcast method where there's one message and it's propagated throughout the web and we hope that all sub-communities will pick up that message and embody it and understand it. Um, and through this sort of linking behavior that we've developed these maps on, um, that's kind of based on how static information moves through the web. Uh, the second way is for more dynamic content. So how can we figure out in public health, for example, like what's really popular right now? What are the perspectives that are being propagated widely, largely through social media? So it doesn't mean that a particular frame on HIV destigmatization, for example, is going to be one that exists long term, but it's possible that today it had two million shares. So we're looking at two different things. We're looking at, at information that sustains through, through um, information networks online and information that becomes really hot for a short period of time and understanding which messages you can target for the short periods of time and which ones are more important to have on the agenda long term. So um, a second theory that is important to build here is uh, the parasocial contact hypothesis, which is a really, uh, really interesting theory that was developed at the Contemporary Media Studies program at the um, MIT's Media Lab. 
and it essentially takes on the original contact hypothesis which talks about how under particular and appropriate conditions having interpersonal contact with someone that's a representative of um, a given subgroup that may be marginalized or stigmatized against um, may decrease the prejudice and stigma that you feel towards that particular group. Um, and that's been verified particularly through um, this paper on the, paras the parasocial contact hypothesis where it's expanded to mass-mediated interactions. So is it possible that interactions you would have while watching a TV show or reading a story that someone's posted on the web will have a similar effect as actually having an, an, a real conversation with someone in real life. So is it possible that the digital media world can actually mimic the real world in changing our perspectives about stereo, um, stereotypes and um, populations that are traditionally prejudiced against? Um, so turns out it worked. Um, specifically, their case studies were on shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and Transparent, where prejudice and stigma was reduced based on this parasocial contact through media which is a really interesting opportunity for public health, especially for seriously stigmatized um, conditions and populations, such as HIV-affected populations, or the excessive stigmatization of STDs and STIs. Um, and it's important for us to start taking lessons from other fields of digital communications, um, and start to build the tools that we use for more effective public health communications. So here we just provided you with a boatload of information, um, a number of theories, a couple of applications and case studies, and we'd really like to use your brains and develop a brainstorming session on how we can translate public health better. Um, so with your backgrounds in kind of internet and digital communications methodologies, um, we're hoping to kind of brainstorm and talk a bit about these discussion questions and figure out how we can take some of the insights from your expertise areas back to the public health community so that we can communicate better and mitigate these echo chambers that seem to have formed online. So. We also welcome questions on anything that we presented, too. <laughs> we do welcome questions. <laughs> so um, to start, is there anything of particular interest that you have questions about that we can dive into a little bit more deeply? Yeah. But are you sure that vaccines don't cause out people? <laughs> 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, that was clearly a joke. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for this. I, I, I found it really interesting. What, what, one thing that I, I, I keep wondering, and, and now I wonder again, is has anyone studied the actual dynamics within this group of people that, that creates this, this misinformation news? So. I understand that there was this one paper. I understand that some people are maybe prone to believe that government wants wants to you know do bad things to them, some conspiracy theories, etc. But like, how exactly this this belief that they, they they think they should share and they should con convince other people comes about? And maybe like I think 
understanding that pattern would also help us to create, you know, like a counter conspiracy theory mm -hmm. on how to talk to those people about the fact that, you know, somebody wants you to think that vaccines are bad for you, but actually you will die if you don't vaccine yourself or your child or something. Counter conspiracy theories. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I think this element goes back to the topic of social proof. Isn't that just the, the mm. data? Isn't, <laughs> isn't that conspiracy? I mean, we wish. <laughs> isn't that just the data? That's yeah. the problem yeah. is that is that we imagine that just presenting evidence is sufficient in creating that kind of counter conspiracy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's true that the behavior within these individual echo chambers for sure varies by content and context. Um, so what we're looking at here isn't um, the misinformation that's spread by individuals, which MediaCard actually has the capability of doing now is looking at how Twitter shares of particular content build into particular networks. And we can look at the Twitter networks themselves and see who's sharing to whom, um, what other type of similar or different content have they been sharing. Um, but for this, we're, we're just looking at um, the media source communities. So how misinformation spreads between media source communities also has embedded within it the agendas of these sources and the type of audience that they need and the ad revenue that they can get from these additional shares. So there's a number of dynamics that are at play when you're considering the media ecosystem, which is definitely different from kind of the biases and heuristics that exist within human echo chambers of propagating information. One challenge, especially in the vaccine context, is that the uh, public health professionals, as you say, speak the language of statistics, mm -hmm. and it's asymmetrical warfare because they're speaking the language of anecdote. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And people understand and gravitate to stories yes. and storytelling. Yeah. And stories are what get Statistics don't get shared over the internet. Exactly. Stories get shared over the yeah. internet. Exactly. Right. Um, exactly. And, you know, so stories of babies who are scarred for life because yeah. their parents exactly. are dumb shits exactly. are actually what need to be. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I don't want to talk that way as the presenter. I have to, but I welcome <laughs> others. <laughs> and, and we've seen a bit of this just recently. The, on the Affordable Care Act, right now there are beginning to be headline stories like the boy who can't speak, you know, yeah. the child who has $800,000 in bills. Exactly. With, you know, what a lifetime, you know. Oddly, it, it's odd that it took until now until we're at the precipice. Yeah. But you can see it's those stories that are animating the reporting exactly. and the media. Exactly. So. And, oh, well, I just want to fully agree with you. Um, Storytelling is powerful. There's a lot of um, literature to back that up. Here's the challenge is, is a public health success is a non-event. It's really hard right. to create an interesting story about something yeah. that never happened. Yeah. My daughter was born and I vaccinated and she never got measles. <laughs> the end. I mean, that's so boring. Like, how do you create a, an, a story about yeah. an individual like it's, that? And it's it's got to be the inverse. Yeah. It's where when it didn't. it's where there's a fail and a consequence. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. but it's it's difficult to it's difficult it's difficult to capture those non-events and and talk about them because we yeah. don't know when you almost didn't get in that 
car accident or, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. yeah. The question I wrote down is, should I look for stories in the sphere of deviance? It's almost the inverse of that. Like, so you're talking, it's basically a big trust problem. And yeah. I feel like if institutions push really hard for reporters and media to tell stories of that propagate their message, that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. I think you need honest stories about yeah. the people, quite large communities now, maybe, I don't yeah. know, yeah. but that are, that just won't ever listen to that story. They're just gone. They're not never gonna listen to that story. But if you tell their story honestly and tie it in with the language and the yeah. themes of, you know, other institutions, mm -hmm. then I think that yeah. maybe is a better plan. I mean, you're exactly referring to this bridging concept, mm -hmm. which would be visualized in one of these maps as a story or a source that uses language that has been used by traditionally either marginalized or disparate communities in order to bridge gaps and provide, for example, a link, a physical link between two communities that would otherwise not discuss with one another. And in the short term, a link like that is effective just for bridging the gap and, and, and helping people who read such content. But it's also, in kind of a long-term game, those will be the sources that may start to be consulted by both sides mm -hmm. of a given argument or controversy. Fix this problem instead of saying, "Here's an example of someone who didn't vaccine and it went horribly wrong." And aren't we always right? Mm -hmm. They would say, "Here's an example of a community that doesn't believe in vaccines or whatever." But here's their doctor who you know, is a normal doc, you know, does believe vaccines work, but believe, you know, has to work with them mm -hmm. and talk to, talk to her and she will, you know, she will give you an amazing story because right now media doesn't have, like you say, they don't have permission to step into the sphere of deviance. But if an yeah. institution says, check this out, you know, these are people too. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah. that opens it up. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely true. It's, it's institutionally shifting the narrative. Um, at least engaging with alternate narratives um, without verifying, of course, but also this idea of championing individual stories, which is what makes mainstream news. And we can't keep talking about this as a statistical issue from the field of public health. That's what we're most comfortable with and most excited about, but it can't be a statistical versus actual lives dichotomy. Mm -hmm. well, well, just on top of that, I was wondering if you were at all worried that by stepping into this sphere of deviance, you're normalizing some kinds of deviant ideas and giving them more widespread authority. I mean, I, I sort of think that as a reporter, you should not be trying to normalize any ideas in some ways. Like, that's not really my role to normalize anyone's ideas. It's just to say what's happening out there. Um, but yeah, definitely, I would worry. I would be, that this would be a very difficult story to write if I went to, I don't know, an anti-vax community in California and spent, you know, two weeks with them and wrote a big story about it, I'd be very worried that everyone would be like, look, the economist wrote about anti-vax, it's, it's legit. Um, so, but there are ways to do that. You know, you don't only write about things that are true. So just an interesting point from the vaccine study that would um, maybe cause some more questions is one thing that we're able to look at is how st sources on either side of this conversation, the pro-vaccine and the anti-vaccine movement, would reference the same CDC content and just have it interpreted differently. Mm -hmm. So mentioning content or creating content 
isn't what necessarily normalizes something because mm -hmm. the interpretation piece is also so essential. So our the so of the vaccine community um, in our map the the broad vaccine network that we mapped out the vaccine hesitant community the dominant authority in that community was NCBI which is the NIH um, data website and abstract aggregator so so what we saw happening within that community is there was this value of very you know evidence driven conversation but a ton of cherry picking of of studies where only the abstract was available publicly because they're hidden in these journals where if you don't have a subscription or you don't want to pay $40 to read the whole article you just get the abstract so limitations are not present the context of that that abstract within the broader body of literature is not present so it, it becomes very easy to create a narrative and use science but um, but really um, manipulate that abstract to fit within your pre-existing narrative and we saw that fairly consistently within the vaccine hesitant network which was surprising to us um, yeah so one thing I think in terms of ways of thinking about health communication and as a how to push and where to go is to think about trust as mistrust not being a lack of trust, but mistrust being its own thing and trust being its own thing. Mm -hmm. You have really different populations that you're dealing with. And so the ways that mistrust works in a given community isn't necessarily gonna be the same. I mean, this is what you're pointing to, that yes, they're, they're picking up the scientific articles and interpreting them differently, and over here, we think that this is self-evident. Mm -hmm. So you have different ways of both trusting and mistrusting that are going on. They're not the inverse of each other, and they're working differently in these different spaces. Right, but with the, same, the very same piece of content. Yeah, yep. that's a great point. That's a really great point. And distinguishing between those was really helpful. I didn't make it up. <laughs> you didn't make it up. <laughs> so what do we do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah help us. Um, well, I'm a YouTuber, and I have an idea to share. Um, what I've noticed is, you know, I do stuff that's very explicitly public health oriented, um, and there are a lot of YouTubers who are trying to do stuff they want to do good, mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a real disconnect, like you were saying, and it was just interesting looking at those charts, it's like, of course, you know, let's just exactly. visualize everything that I see online. Um, but there's no, they are trying, and they are not finding help. Um, yeah. there, there really is this, I think there's no... Um, there's no communication on a personal level between mm -hmm. public health experts mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and social influencers, mm -hmm. who yes. are these people yes. who, without any sort of um, information or any sort of framework of critical thinking about this stuff, mm -hmm. are making these articles, are making right. these videos, and being viewed millions of times. Yeah. And to their audiences, they are the authority. Yeah. To my yes. audience, I am the authority. Exactly. Even though I am not actually an authority, but right. to them I absolutely am. Um, and that makes me very nervous, but it makes you know a lot of people very happy right. <laughs> that they can just sort of say whatever they want, and then they have right. the validation of a lot of people. So you know, I think it's um, one thing that is really important, and something that I would love to see, and that I'm trying to figure out in working with Twitter and YouTube and stuff, is how to get um, public health expert voices into that space mm -hmm. um, and to bridge that gap into. You know, you were talking about inviting the public to the conversation, which mm -hmm. also sounds scary to me. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe the social influencers are part of that public. You know, mm -hmm. having yeah. those conversations because they're extremely right. valuable in terms of affecting public. Right. YouTube is a powerful voice in all our studies, and often it is 
it was in the vaccine hesitant community. I, we are doing a fluoride study and it's um, a powerful voice, but in the anti-fluoride community. So I, I think you're onto something. And I would also say that I have not once ever used YouTube to communicate, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. It is a very new platform. And I think a lot of people who are experts right now, they're too old. Most of them are not, not sorry, <laughs> they're not too old. <laughs> the institutions within which we operate are very long-standing yeah. and very rigid, right? And, and yeah. tend to be antiquated in their methods for disseminating information. Yeah. So you're right. It, I just think it's new. It's new. It's kids, yeah. it's kids that are on the platform. I mean, I started yeah. when I was 17 on there. You know? yeah. It's kids that are on the platform. So I don't know how to fix that, you know, yeah. but I do think that's something worth thinking about. And creating allyships with perhaps YouTube as a company. Mm -hmm. I know they're very open to this stuff. Um, Twitter as a company in terms of figuring out how to facilitate those relationships. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. So uh, when I was listening to you, it reminds me of the uh, that that analogy out of political campaigning, which is the question, is it the pizza or the box? If, <laughs> if you're thinking about how to deliver something, is it the substance of the message or is it the packaging of the, of the message? And that's, of course, inadequate. In this case, the question is, is it the pizza, the box or the delivery person? <laughs> and I, I feel like you're partway towards answering that question, but don't have it fully down. So I, I'm not sure how to do that. I think it would be interesting to design um, work to actually test that empirically yeah. to say, if can you take the same people, the same entities with different messages and see if there's a difference in uptake there versus actually changing the messengers itself? My, my own suspicion is that it is the messengers. There's an increasing body of, of, of information, language, and, and, uh, and scholarship out there that says that, as you say, that knowledge is social and people really don't think that much and they don't know what they don't know, but they do pick up on the people around them and, and their understanding of what they know or not is really coming out of their community and not there. And uh, the last piece I just want to lob on there is there are strong parallels between this and so many other things. And yeah. uh, one of them is uh, the work that's emerging around hate speech online and trying to understand what counter speech and what counter narrative is effective in that way. Mm -hmm. and. I, that was going to be my last thought, but I lied. One last thought, which is uh, that I think in public health communication, um, there's a sense of being special and that having a better sense of what's right and what's wrong. Oh, it's totally patriarchal. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> is that what you mean? <laughs> I want to believe that too. And, and, and I think in vaccines, it's true. It's like yeah. the evidence is so, so strong. How can you do that? But it's true of climate change as well. Yeah. And um, I think, I don't know if, leaning into that special sense of having better knowledge than other people is helpful yeah. or, or harmful yeah. in this context. I, I just want to go back to the YouTube thing. I think because it, it's almost like it feels like a peer and that resonates with people versus an authority yeah. that might have ulterior motives or a financial motive, although YouTube people can do really well apparently. But um, I think it's, kind of, yeah, it's back to the idea of peer-to-peer -peer communication, and I'll just give a real quick example, and then I know we have a couple more. Um, so I, I've been working with the American Dental Association on communication about fluoride for a while, um, and it's been fine, but they decided to take a risk and um, had me do a project with them 
as not as Brittany Seymour, the Harvard professor, but as Brittany, the mom. And it's amazing how successful that was. Um, and of course, buried in there is she's also an expert in blah, 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 blah. But <laughs> I was present, and I felt very vulnerable <laughs> putting myself out there as human mom Brittany, not like hiding behind my academic um, credential. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was very successful, like surprisingly successful. And it was a risk for the ADA because they, they typically mm. are, you know, promote information in yeah. a more traditional manner. Um, yeah. But, but that's back to the, the messenger um, yeah. that I think maybe we're onto something. Yeah. And the fact that it's surprisingly successful is only surprising because we're public health practitioners. <laughs> yeah, it's right. not surprisingly <laughs> it's not it's not surprisingly effective if we are the population at large. Having someone that you can directly identify with and there's been countless studies on this will lead to different behaviors than receiving information from a key infor information authority, um, which is why absolutely diving more deeply into how individuals communicate with one another is definitely a next step for at least testing out some of these large theories that we've been developing in grassroots interventions, which which are, are definitely our, our next step with yeah, this work. I mentioned for some intervention studies. <laughs> yeah, for some intervention studies. Uh, so related to what, what should the message be, it, at one point you were talking about why people seek out this information and you said, you know, when they're afraid, right? When they're afraid and they go, I, I actually think that's an empirical question. Like I don't, I, I don't, I'm sure there are some instances where people are seeking out information because of fear, but I don't know that that's actually the case in a lot of things related to health communication. Mm -hmm. You know, people mm -hmm. get interested in diets not because they are necessarily afraid but because they want something else mm -hmm. or um, they they start you know diving into you know pro anasites because mm -hmm. of other kinds of issues mm -hmm. and, and so it, some must be fear but not I really yeah. don't think all of it is so I think oh, that this is, it's an empirical question and one of those things that actually has to be added to you know what should the message be and how should it be right right and that may be case like it, it, Ebola, it, yeah, it's specifically for the is, infectious disease yeah. topics that we've been focusing on, fear is a huge driver in trying to find kind of a scapegoat or um, a target for where particular source of information came from that led to X outcome. Um, but you're absolutely right. It is a question that has mm -hmm. to be asked for each individual case study, for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's whatever drives an individual priority is what leads will lead to a change in behavior and a change of perspective or not. Afraid of the things we should be afraid of, as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the focus is all on online, and I guess that's because there's data. But do you have any sense of the the role that offline communication in any form plays in the the same propagation that we're talking about? Because I sort of suspect that to to focus on offline is to miss probably the bulk of the actual picture. I have no idea, but. Increasingly, it's not the bulk um, because so much of this communication and the propagation of particular perspectives and the development of echo chambers reinforces what happens in our lived realities. And I think a dichotomy between a world in person and a world online may not be as productive as it once was. I think the relationships between the two, I think they're very closely intertwined. So studying how individuals communicate in a digital realm will ref 
will reflect what takes place in a, in, a, in, a, in the physical world, so to speak. Um, again, for a lot of these studies, we're not looking at individuals, we're looking at sources that interact with one another. Um, but had we looked specifically for these case studies at individuals, it would be closely intertwined um, with what happens in a physical world. And there have been a number of other studies done at the Berkman Center that focus on um, individuals and sharing content. Um, Jonas worked on a study that focused on uh, skepticism and climate change in Germany specifically. So if you have more questions about how the digital and kind of physical realms interact with regards to misinformation or echo chambers, there's a number of other experts here who focus on that. Confirm that for the. I, I actually worked with Brittany on this on on Zika and and did did work with people on the ground as well as do the media cloud right. studies and so it's now the same thing but it it absolutely paralleled the group I worked in Brazil and yeah. the people who were exchanging like large group messages with with WhatsApp uh, you know where they're exchanging some of these things that are also on YouTube they're um, sending videos audio I mean, these things are circulating. And they are also circulating online. So it, you're not doing the same thing, but they they really did very much overlap. Yeah. So it gives you some good sense when you're doing this work of how, how, how what's happening offline, even if large phone groups are offline. But they're very much throwing conversations people are having too. That's a, that's a good thing. I mean, it's a, it, it makes the, it confirms that the tool is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I I was struck by your comment that. Um, uh, people are pointing to abstracts in uh, PubMed as mm -hmm. part of their uh, argument yeah. in favor of vaccines. Do you think opening, having uh, the scientific literature open out from behind the paywall would make any real difference or would people just misread the full context or, uh, or just ignore it at that point? That's a good question. Um, I think there are so many reasons we need to open that up. <laughs> um, I think I think our audiences are, are smart and sophisticated and are figuring a lot of things out, and I think they may be ready for the full versions. Um, that's, but at, that at the feels, same time, I know. <laughs> I know, uh, yeah. lots of at people the, at are. The problem is not enough yeah. people reading the core material. Yeah, yeah. Like, so that's, so that, that just. <laughs> there are three, what, like, 350 million Americans? Like, how many of them are going to read the core thing yeah. like, and, and like draw conclusions from that? Rational. Yeah, it's definitely a combination. Yeah, it's a combination of that and when we're not, not to focus so much on the findings as disseminating the findings in ways that are digestible and aren't necessarily in this select number of peer-reviewed journals. So definitely, I'm not sure if access to the larger article would have led to a different interpretation of the information, but a more readable interpretation of the information may have led to a different interpretation of the information. It's possible, but all of these, again, have to be empirically tested and verified and then disseminated in a popular way for, for us for us to really be able to make conclusions about it. No. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it would, the fact that the public reads abstracts means there should be public apps, like for the public abstracts. Yeah, yeah, I think, and that's where I'm thinking we need, there's, I think we just need to rethink our whole way of, of, of yeah. um, dissemination. Yeah. But that summary is already out there. The summary is is vaccinate your kids. And, and yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
how much nuance needs to be added to that? In the, I mean, if people either, if they're not believing that, there's something else at heart. It's not the content of the article. Agreed. Agreed. And I don't think any standalone paper is worth it. I think, you know, you can't look at one paper and say, I now know X for sure, because there's a paper. I mean, it's really the, the, within the context of the broader body of literature that gets lost with these individual papers. Mm. Um, but you, you've been dying. Let's yes. <laughs> so two major things. As Natalie just said, and first of all, thank you for the talk. Um, what we're talking about now basically is the so-called knowledge deficit model. And especially this has been a topic for years now in climate change communication with the idea being that if people just knew enough about this topic, they'd behave differently, which, sorry, is not the case. So we, we can talk about abstracts and open access, uh, but this won't change a lot or anything at all, um, because which would lead to the second thing. Um, and I think, and like vaccination opponents are not like just there, but it's really more a case of identity. So it's not like, they're not just like, they have this belief that vaccination will cause autism, but otherwise like they're totally embedded into the mainstream, but rather this is some aspect of like who they are and who they like identify with. And this then is much differently and, and much different and much harder to tackle because it's not a question about knowledge. It's not about question of just being corrected, but rather a question of convincing someone that the group he or she be believes to be part of is is like wrong and this needs to be addressed in many different ways especially i think through framing through narratives uh, but also obviously through a public health a system that encourages this in a yeah. larger scale than it already does obviously yeah and and the bridge figures are the ones that can start to propagate different narratives because if you're still isolated within individual source echo chambers you'll never get a different narrative across so bridging gaps between the sources that convey one message and the source conveys that conveys another is what allows for the greater nuance and diversity of narratives that may finally start to penetrate these seemingly impenetrable echo chambers, yeah. which is an issue right now that we're facing in a variety of fields outside of the area of public health. So the great thing is <laughs> we have some amazing um, thinkers and doers and who are working on trying to tackle these issues. So if you're interested in getting involved, definitely um, reach out to us. We'd love to continue the conversation. Are there any other quick questions before we uh, we're at time. have to abruptly end at time? We're good? Okay. Thank you so much. That Thanks. was really, uh, we appreciate the questions and the pushback. Yeah.